Welcome to the Harvest Bible Chapel of Winston-Salem podcast. We believe in proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information, visit harvestws.org. Here's this week's message. Nehemiah 10 and we are getting very close to ending out this series, which will end in a couple of weeks. And I hope that, that God has really worked in your heart during this series. I know He has in mine. And just reminding myself that I serve a God who builds. That that's my God. That He's always working. He's always active. He never sleeps. He, he, he's, he's always there, ready to listen. And, and He is working in my life. Even in times where... I may be unfaithful, that God is building, God is working, and that's really why we titled the series as we've walked through this book of Nehemiah, The God Who Builds, and if you're new with us, here's what we mean by that, that God is faithful to remember and act upon His promises to build His people and His church for His glory, that as we've walked through every verse and every chapter of this book and seeing God's faithfulness to the children of Israel despite their unfaithfulness, and how God raised up a man in the man named Nehemiah to be obedient to God's calling for his life. And how Nehemiah's obedience to God's calling in his life allowed obedience to lead a people to be once again obedient to God. And to believe that God is not done with them yet. And to see them rebuild walls that had lied in rubble for so long. And to see those walls rebuilt. And, and the past few weeks as we've walked through this book and seeing not only the walls rebuilt, but now seeing Nehemiah's focus shift to rebuilding the lives of God's people. And let me just say this as a side note. Nehemiah is not the hero of this story. God's the hero of this story. And I'm not the hero of my story. And you're not the hero of your story. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, God is the hero of your story. And as we look at these pages and we walk through this series, and, and as we'll do it again this morning, I want us to remember that Nehemiah is not the hero. God's the hero. And we celebrate today that God's the hero. That God is the hero, and we can say that today because of who he sent the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. And so Nehemiah 10 is where we are this morning, and I'm going to start reading actually in Nehemiah 9, verse 38. If you were here last week, some of you may have walked out of here and say, well, you didn't finish out the chapter. You didn't read verse 38. Well, I had a purpose, all right? So shame on you for judging me all week. Uh, but we're, <laughs> we're going to start reading in Nehemiah 9, verse 38. Would you look at it with me? It says, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes and our Levites and our priests. So, because of all of what? Well, if you've been here the, the last week and two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, because we took a break for Easter, we were in Nehemiah 8. And do you remember in Nehemiah 8 that, that all the people gathered together in front of the temple there at the water gate, and they gather together and they build this platform, and Ezra, the priest, gets up there and he opens up the book of the law, something that many, many, the vast majority of the audience there of the Israelites had never even heard before. And he opens that book and 
he reads out of that book and there's celebration and there's tears and and as he reads out of that book the people are reminded once again of what God has told them and last week we looked at Nehemiah 9 and talked about confession and repentance because that's what we see in Nehemiah 9 and Nehemiah 8 we see joyous celebration they're reminding themselves of God's provision then we get to Nehemiah 9 and now it's about confession and repentance remember how we defined repentance the word literally means a changing of the mind so what God desires for me and for you as followers of Jesus Christ is that that we would have a constant lifestyle of confession and repentance Remember how we talked about last week how we oftentimes view confession and repentance as a negative thing, but it's not a negative thing. It's a very positive thing. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing where I'm keeping close accounts of where do I need to confess sin and where I need to repent to have a change of mind towards it, that I literally need to say, this is the way that I've been going in my walk and I'm being disobedient, but Lord, I see my sin for what it is. I see it the way that you see it. I see it as me going the wrong way, as wicked, and God, I want to repent. I want to change my mind toward what I have been doing. And as we do that, we see God once again for who he is. The last week we looked at that passage of scripture in Nehemiah 9 that God is great. People of Israel acknowledge once again that God is great, that he is Lord. And they say, man, we're going to declare it. They see that God is good. And how in Nehemiah 9, over 50 times, that word is you is mentioned. And they recognize once again, God, you are good. And we're going to believe it. Then you see them relying and saying, God, even though we've been unfaithful, God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And they once again remind themselves, God, you are gracious and we, praise God, we can receive it. And so now they come to verse 38 and they, they say to themselves, man, we're so committed to this to bring ourselves back to, to, to what God told us to do all the way back and in Deuteronomy and reminding ourselves that there's blessings when we obey God and there's, there's consequences and curses when we disobey God. And so they say, we're going to commit once again to be obedient what God told us to do all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. So they commit to that. And they create a document that says that. And so they have representation of people who sign this document. So look at verse 1. It says, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah. Don't you love How Nehemiah, just the way that he leads, remember, he's not the hero of the story, but the way that he leads, like he says, wait a minute, I'm going to be the first one to sign this, because I'm no different than you. I'm going to be obedient to what God has called me to do, because I give an account, no, for nobody else's life but mine, and Nehemiah says, I'm going to be the first one. I love that. Leaders lead, right? On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor of the son of how Kaliah, and then you have Zedekiah, and listen, I'm not going to entertain you and read these names again, all right? I've already done it twice, right? So every name that ends in I-A-H that's possible is found here. So let me just give you a breakdown, right? So you have the names of Israel's priests listed in verses 2 through 8. So, so those are the names of the priests that minister in the temple, and then you have the names of the Levites, that you find in verses 9 through 13. And then in verses 14 through 27, you find the names that represent 44 of the noble households of of Israel, of the southern kingdom of Judah. And what that's representing is, hey, everybody's committed to do this. To do what? To obey God's law, to obey God's word. And now we come, I'm actually going to read this. We come to verse 28. 
And it says in the rest of the people. Because you had people that were not necessarily Jews that said, no, we believe that God is the one true God and we believe in His Word and, and we are going to set ourselves apart to, to worship Him. And so you had other people that were from other nations that had set themselves apart to, to worship God. And so all of those people now are all gathered together. It says the priests, the Levites, verse 28, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding. So every person there, every man, woman, and child that is there that have set themselves apart to serve God. It's a massive group of people, just like we found in Nehemiah chapter 8. And look at what they say. They join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to do what? To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Let me just stop there. This isn't a new thing. What they're saying is, is God, we're bringing ourselves back to what we once committed, and we're committing to do it again. That we're going to worship you for who you are. That we're going to see your word for what it is. And we're going to be obedient to it. It says in verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or Take their daughters for our sons. We'll explain what we mean by that, what it means by that. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We'll explain what that means. And then we come to verse 32, and look what they say. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly. Now, in our time today, we see obligation as not a great word. Not a great word, right? It's like, okay, I'm being forced to do this. I'm doing this out of duty rather than delight. That's not the idea of this, of this Hebrew word. It has this idea that, God, based on what you've done for us, God, it would only be right for us to do this for you. Okay, so that's, that's the idea. So they says, we will take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God. So there was a temple tax that was, goes all the way back to the verse at Exodus. And, and let me just read some of these verses. I'm not going to take time to read all of them, but it says in verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and to bring to the house of our God the, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds, of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests. So you see there that they're saying, God, we're going to bring to you the best. Not the leftovers. We're going to bring to you the best. We see it as our obligation. We see it as a responsibility. We see it as a privilege based on everything that you've done for us. What it says in verse 38, And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes of the house of God. Now jump down to the end of verse 39. Look at what they say. They do all of this, but here's the point. We will not neglect the house of our God. I don't know if you realize this, but sometimes we think back, we think the whole giving the 10% thing and, and that, 
coming out of the New T- Old Testament, and I would say you're right, but I don't know if you realize this or not, but they're giving a whole lot more than 10%. They're giving like 10% of everything. And they're saying, we're going to give you first fruits of this and first fruits of that and all that. But here's the reality. They bring themselves back to, here's what we're going to commit to again. We're going to commit that we're not going to neglect the house of our God. See, the title of this message this morning is this, The Blessings of Obedience. I want to remind ourselves today as we sit here this morning under the authority of God's word that there are tremendous blessings when we're obedient to God's word. We've got to bring ourselves back to that reality. I got here some poison. This is not purple Gatorade. I got some poison here. This is, this is antifreeze, all right? But just to be careful, I put this label on it. So let's, let's think about this scenario. Let's say I ran a marathon, which is a very crazy scenario, but stick with me. So I went and, and I ran a marathon, and, and there was not water available. And so I got done running that marathon, and I am exhausted, I am, ex- I am dehydrated, I am dizzy, and I am extremely thirsty. And I just happened to see, sitting over there, this, thing, this, this uh, jug dripping, perspiring, looking cold, looking good. And I look at that and say, man, there's something wet. It's cold. I want to drink it. And then all of a sudden, I see this label and you see this label. And I'm going to about to drink it. And hopefully, if you care anything about me, you would say what? No, you don't need to drink that. Why? Because it's poison. How do I know it's poison? Because there's a massive label on the bottle. Now, at no time... Once I realize that, regardless of how thirsty I am, am I going to say, well, did the person who put on this label really know what they're talking about? Like, I think I know more about what's in this bottle than he or she does. Or maybe, I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't say this. Well, that person knows what they're talking about And I've seen evidence that they know what they're talking about because I'm aware that other people have drank poison and it did not end too well with them. But you know, I'm different. I'm different. I know it's happened to this person and this person and this person. I watch YouTube and it's happened, God forbid, to all these people. But I'm different. I'm the exception. I'm going to drink. That's a stupid, stupid person, right? Stupid. Say stupid. Don't look at the person next to you and say stupid. Just say stupid. Why? Because none of us would think if it says poison on it, I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe it's not. And how often, you ought to be connecting the dots already. You're at the 11 o'clock service, not the 9. And so you ought to be thinking to yourself, I know where this is going, and if you know where it's going, you're right. How many of us, we look at God's word, and what do we say? Well, I'm not really sure God knows more about my life than I do on what's best. Or we say to ourselves, well, I know that God's word says that. I know what the label says if I do that, but, and I've seen the consequences of it in everybody else's life, but I'm different. I think it's interesting that we place so much trust, rightfully so, in the people that put labels on things to tell us what is good and what is not. 
But when it comes to God's word, we look at it and we say, well, I'm not really sure that that's really what's best. I know more about my life than God does, and I know what's best for my life more than God does, and, and, or I know what's happened to everybody else, but I'm different. I want us to hear, remind ourselves this morning, or maybe for the first time, come to a realization that there's blessings in obedience. So the idea that I want you to get today when you walk out of here is this, that obedience to God's word is a blessing, not a burden. It's a blessing. It's not a burden. I think of Proverbs 16, 13, where the proverb says, the way of the transgressor is easy. Doesn't say that, does it? It says, the way of the transgressor or the sinner is hard. It's hard. And so often we want to think to ourselves, no, doing my own thing my way instead of God's way actually brings blessing instead of coming to the realization that, no, it actually doesn't. It actually brings burden. It actually brings misery. It actually can bring harm. It can bring harm to your life. And let me just burst the bubble here, all right? Let me tell you the end of the story if you haven't read ahead. That despite what we see in Nehemiah 10 of these peoples, of this people of Israel's zeal to say, God, we're going to commit, we're even going to put it in writing, we're even going to seal it, we're going to tell ourselves, God, we're going to obey. We know, we know if we disobey, there's going to be cursing, but God, we're going to take an oath and we're going to walk in your ways and we're going to observe to do all your commandments. The problem is, is they, they're going to fail again. And the problem with me in and of myself and my own strength and my own power, I'm going to fail over and over and over and over again. And so I want to say this at the outset. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Praise God for Jesus Christ because that's why I came. Because God knew you couldn't do what he designed you to do. You couldn't do what he required of you to have a relationship with him. To be able to experience all the promises that are, that are offered to us in and of ourselves, can't be done. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he became sin, who knew no sin, so that we would be made the righteousness of God. So when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now all of a sudden, God's perfect life to actually obey all the commandments that God set up, God, Jesus Christ obeyed those. So his perfection is put in my place to replace my sinfulness and his death on the cross. He absorbed God's judgment for my sin and his resurrection gave evidence to his victory and death over sin. So if I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now all of a sudden I am been made right with God, not because of me, but because of what Jesus Christ did. He lived everything out perfectly. And then he also gives me the Holy Spirit, which is made reference in John 14 that says the Holy Spirit will come and he will bring to your mind what is right, what is true. And so not only have I been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ, and, and I can now look and say even when I disobey, I can confess and repent what we looked at last week, and I can be brought into closer relationship and fellowship with God and grow in my relationship with God. But it comes back to me understanding that there's blessing in obedience. Obedience to God's word is a blessing, not a burden. Matthew 11, it's on the screen. Verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden. See, I know there's people in this room, especially with a crowd this size, and right now you're experiencing misery because you've walked in disobedience. What I love is you see Jesus' heart here and his love here and his forgiveness here. He says, hey, come to me. Come to me, those who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, like be joined to me. That's the idea. And learn from me. me. Let me show you what it looks like to walk in obedience. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, not heavy, light. So what I want to do this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture, I mean, look at this idea that obedience to God's Word is a blessing, not a burden. I want to give you four blessings that I see when we obey God's Word. In, in Nehemiah chapter 10, look at verse 29 again. These people of Israel say, man, God, we're going to enter into a curse, understanding that if we're disobedient, there's going to be misery. But God, we're going to enter into it and enter into an oath to do what? To walk. To be in relationship with you. We're going to walk in progression to your law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe, we're going to exercise great care over. That's what that word means. God, we're going to, we're going to exercise great care over our obedience and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. I already told you the children are going to fail again. But aren't you glad as we looked at the God who builds that God is faithful even when we're not? And that's why he sent Jesus So today, as I sit here today, I can say, even though I may be walking in disobedience, hey, there's nothing that I can do that can put me out of reach of a long arm of the grace and forgiveness of God that he offers through Jesus Christ. So here's the first blessing that I see. When I obey God's word, number one, my relationship with the Lord becomes more personal. Becomes more personal. See, some of us view the Word of God as a list of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, 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 don't do this. You tired of me saying that yet? That's how we view it. I'm sure, that's how the children of Israel viewed it. Instead of seeing it as a means of blessing rather than a list of of don'ts. See, every one of us probably, if not the majority of us, have one of these today. And let's just imagine that you're going home today and you get a text message from God. Just imagine that. And you don't see a number, it just says God. Would you read it? Eh, Probably. probably. Yeah, of course you would read it. Why would you read it? Because you're like, holy cow, as ridiculous as this illustration sounds, holy cow, like, this is God talking to me. And what we need to bring ourselves back to today, or maybe realize for the first time, is that God's word is God's message to me. It's his instruction manual to me. It's God telling me this is what's right. 
This is how you're experiencing blessing. And this is what's wrong. And this is what I want you to avoid so you're not burdened and you experience misery and you experience pain and you experience harm. See, what's happened is, is, is the prosperity gospel movement that God wants everybody to be rich and God doesn't want anybody to be sick. And, or are you, if, if you're right with God, you're wealthy, you're healthy, and you're wise. And what's happened is, is we're so scared to say that there's blessing and obedience that we, that we actually throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And yes, there's suffering. And yes, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And, there's, and absolutely, there's trials, and that's how we grow. But the problem is, is that we've equated today blessing with stuff. And it's so much more than that. I mean, if we're going to equate blessing with stuff that we can't take with us, that's going to break down and, and, and rust out and be, be gone in a few years, then man, I don't know about you, but that doesn't excite me long term. What we're talking about today as we see in this passage of Scripture of what blessing is and what God told the children of Israel is things that last, that have significance. And there's nothing more significant than my relationship with Jesus Christ and me growing in that. And man, when I understand that every day I have an opportunity to open God's word and to hear from him, you've heard me say this, we say this now, God's word open, God's mouth open, but it doesn't stop there. God's word opened, God's mouth opened, but here's an important aspect, my heart opened. And I want to be obedient. And as I'm obedient to God's word, I'm growing in my relationship with God. It's becoming more personal. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 16 through 18. And Paul has this prayer that he prays to the church at Ephesus. And even as I was studying this passage of Scripture in Nehemiah 10 and, and thought of Ephesians 1, I read this passage and I thought, man, when's the last time I prayed that for myself? When's the last time I prayed this for my wife? When's the last time I prayed this for my family? When's the last time I prayed this for my church? Look at what Paul prays. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Why? So that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? What's Paul saying? Man, I want you to understand that as you grow in your relationship with the Lord, what begins to happen is you begin you get to see him fuller. You grow in your depth of who Jesus is. You understand once again and more and more that your, that your life is not defined by the here and now, but it's defined in light of eternity. And you're saying to yourself, God, let me concentrate not so much on what's tomorrow, but God, let me concentrate on the joy that I have to look forward to and being with you forever. That grows as I submit myself to God's word and obey God's word and see God's word as a blessing, not a burden. And when I do that, the first blessing is my relationship with God grows more personal. It's God's word to me. See, a lot of us, when we read God's word, we sit in a service, sit in a life group, even in our own quiet time, we're like, Man, that is so good for that person over there that sits next to me all the time. Or that's so good for that person that's really ticking me off this past week, right? Right? 
And man, we can preach like nobody's business to somebody else. But here's the reality. No, no, no. It starts, it's God's word to me. It's to me. Let me show you the second blessing. It's found in verse 30. Look at what, look at what the children of Israel say. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now let me explain this. This is not a racial statement. Okay? It's not a racial statement. It's a religious statement. So what they're saying here is, is they're going back to what was Moses said in Exodus 34 when God says, I don't want you to intermarry with people that don't worship me as God. And his point for that is he knew that when they did, they would start to worship their gods that are not God. And so he wanted to set the people apart so that they would not be tempted to worship someone else other than him. That's why God did that. And what we find here is the people are saying to themselves, man, we made big mistakes. We've been disobedient and we've seen the consequences of that. God, we're going to bring ourselves back to what you've already said. Put this chart on the screen to just give you a visual of the blessing that's found in obedience versus the misery that's found in disobedience. Because the reality is, is every single one of us are living in one of those circles today. Some of us may be experiencing misery. Or some of us may be on the cusp of it because we're believing, well, I know the poison hurt everybody else, but I'm different. And some of us are mistaking, not see, experiencing the consequences of our sin right now. We're, we're, we're looking at that and saying, well, that's God's permission for my activity rather than God's grace. And then there's others of us, by God's grace, that we're saying to ourselves, man, I am striving to be obedient to God's word. It doesn't mean that I don't mess up, but when I do, man, I'm going to confess and repent, Nehemiah 9, and be back in fellowship with God. You see, that's God's purpose even when it comes to our relationship. See, here's the second blessing. My relationship with my spouse and family become a partnership. Don't we all want that? If you're married this morning, don't you want your relationship with your spouse to be about a partnership? Like you're together? If you have kids this morning, don't you want that to be said about your family? That, man, we're together? Yeah, <laughs> yeah if you're in my household, yeah, there's times where you've got to play referee. But at the same time, man, we're all striving to be obedient to God's word, man. It's a partnership. And I see in this passage of Scripture that that's God's point for telling them, don't do that. Because if you do that, it's going to rip apart what I designed, the blessing that I designed marriage to be, to be about partnership. That's why Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 6, he talks, verse 14, not being unequally yoked together. Because it creates a problem to where you have one spouse wanting to do what God wants them to do and one spouse that has no concept nor has no desire to do what God wants them to do. And that creates tension. And listen, as soon as I say that, and I thought about it this week as I look at this passage of Scripture, praise God we have people in this room where maybe you got married and the spouse wasn't married and God by His grace brought that other spouse to come into relationship with Jesus Christ. But I think everyone who's in that boat would say, man, we could have avoided a lot of misery if we both would have been on the same page. I mean, that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. And that word submit has been so twisted today. That's such a powerful word. It literally means to hold up your husband. 
But I find it interesting that Paul just doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands and end there. But he says, do it as you do to the Lord. And then, guys, he says to us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church or loves you. So a selfless love, not a selfish love, but a selfless love. And then he makes reference to Genesis 2.24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they will be one flesh. See, the reason why God says through Paul, don't be unequally yoked, is not because he's wanting to limit the playing field for people that don't, aren't yet married. He's doing that because he wants you to experience blessing and not misery. He doesn't want you to drink something that will harm you. That's why missionary dating is bad, 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 bad. You know what I mean by that? Well, I'm going to bring him to Jesus or her to Jesus. And praise God, God does that sometimes, right? Aren't you glad that God works in spite sometimes of our disobedience? I sure am. But that's not God's design. I remember I used to say this, and I heard it in college, and man, I've saved it. I've borrowed it. I've stole it. Here's the phrase, every date is a possible mate. So if you're here today... You're like, well, I'm just going to date around. Every date's a possible mate. I met my wife on a date. Imagine that. (laughs) See, God's design is when I'm obedient to his word, you know what it does? And my wife's obedient to the word, you know what it does? Creates a partnership. Look at this chart on the screen. I use this in premarital counseling. That every one of us want to grow closer together with our spouse, don't we? But here's the reality. That is, I'm pursuing God as my greatest treasure and my wife's pursuing God as her greatest treasure, you know what begins to happen? We, as a result of our vertical focus, grow closer together horizontally. God's desire for your, for your relationship with your spouse is a partnership. What about your kids? Because I don't know if you realize this or not, but in Deuteronomy, or, or Deuteronomy in Nehemiah 10, verse 30, It says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So there's this idea that you shouldn't do it, but you shouldn't allow your kids to do it. So it's not so much I even want to focus on the act of intermarrying with someone who's not a believer, but focusing on the obedience piece, that we as a family are going to be obedient to God because we as spouses, as moms and dads, are going to commit to being obedient to God. And the partnership that that not only creates in our marital relationship, but also in our family relationship. And we don't have time this morning to look at Deuteronomy 6, where where Moses, or or God says through Moses, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then he says, now you also need to teach it diligently to your children. When you sit down, when you lie down, when you wake up, when you walk. And every one of us want our marriage our family to be about oneness and partnership. But what we need to realize is that's a result when we're all committed to be obedient to God. That's the result. It's the partnership that says, and you probably wonder, well, what does the partnership look like? Here's the partnership that we're going to give glory to God. That's the partnership. Listen, Nehemiah When they built those walls, you know what it did? It put God's glory on display. 
For those walls to be built in 52 days, that put God's glory on display. But here's what Nehemiah understood. Not only did God want those walls to put his glory on display, but God wanted what he was doing in the lives of his people to put God's glory on display. And every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are married, ought to say, man, what I want most, and my, me and my wife want to partner with the most, is that our marriage would put God's glory on display. What we ought to want about our families is that, man, our families will put God's glory on display. But it's about that partnership. That's a blessing. It's a blessing when you can experience that. Here's a third blessing. It's found in verse 31. Look at it. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. See, what was going on here is, you know in Exodus 20, if you're familiar with with the Ten Commandments at all, that in Exodus 20, one of the commandments was, thou shalt keep the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So God had set up one day out of the week for them to set it apart to worship God. That was the point. And the people of Israel had not followed it at all. And what they did is they often looked for loopholes and, well, how can I still, still do my thing and, and me not be guilty of, of not working and setting it apart? And so they would look for loopholes. And here was one of the loopholes. Remember, they're under captivity. So there was foreigners that would come in and they would sell things. And what the Jews would say is, oh, see, I'm not selling. I'm not working. I'm just buying. And so therefore, I'm not really breaking what God wanted. And so they were looking for loopholes. And I wonder how many of us, that's how we look at the Bible, right? What's the loophole? How can I, get, how can I do what I want to do and at the same time not be disobedient? And let me look for the loopholes. The problem is, is when we're always looking for the loopholes, we lose out on experiencing God's blessing. And the people of Israel say to themselves, no, 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 it's not about loopholes anymore. Here's the third blessing that my worship to the Lord becomes precious. It's not a burden. It's not a duty. And it's a delight. That my worship to the Lord becomes precious. See, listen to me. What you treasure is what you worship. What you treasure is what you worship. Here's why I say that. Because I'll always make time for what I want to do. Isn't that amazing? I don't have time to do a whole lot of stuff, but I always have time to do what I want to do. Am I the only one in the room? We always have time for what we want to do because we treasure, or what we treasure is what we worship. We're always going to make time for that. And what I love is I see the children of Israel say, we're going to give our time. We're going to treasure what ought to be treasured. And we're going to say to ourselves, that I can do more with my time by giving God my time than I can do with spending all my time on myself. And they say, no, no, we're going to set a time to worship God. And I wonder how many of us, and I know you're here today, and praise God, I'm preaching to the choir this morning, or maybe you're here and God just chose you to be here and haven't been here in a long time. Listen, us setting aside time to gather together in God's house with God's people to give God's glory is something that ought to be valued and precious. It ought to be valued and precious. Now here's what I know your mind's doing. Well, what if I have to work? What if I'm on vacation? 
What if I have a job that makes me work on Sundays? Listen, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about where there is a consistency that I have a church home and I value enough and I value gathering together with God's people and I'm going to make that a priority. That was God's purpose for setting aside a day was that there would be worship, that you would remind yourself that your time's not your time. And I love how the children of Israel say, we're done with the loophole thing. We're going to be obedient to what God says. I think of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Some of you know this well, but it's on the screen. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Well, how do we do that? By not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more. I don't know if you realize this or not, but our world's not getting better. It's getting worse. And I need to be encouraged and challenged by other people who love me and are walking this same Christian walk with me. I need to be encouraged by that. I need to be spurred to that. I need to gather with other people and hear their voices together as we sing as one. I mean, that was the point that there would be a unity. That You see the people once again not just value the walls, but they value also the aspect of we need to worship once again. It brings oneness. It brings unity. Can't be duplicated on a podcast. Can't be duplicated on your screen on your phone. Or, or, and listen, I'm not talking, we have podcasts. We record our services. I'll watch YouTube like everybody else. But when I start to say to myself that that replaces me finding a place to call my home and worship together with other people, I'm in sin. That's what it says. Don't look at me. It's what the writer of Hebrews says. It's what the writer of Hebrews says can't be duplicated and all those things that we have available at our fingertips are awesome things but they not ought to in the long term replace what gathering together with God's people does here's the last thing it's found in verses 32 through 39 and I'm not going to read all these verses we made mention of them at the beginning of this message here's the last blessing my financial investment to the church becomes a passion comes a passion, not a duty, a passion. Can you start to see this morning that when I say to myself, man, God, I'm going to obey what you have to say, rather than thinking I know what's best for my life, you know what I avoid? I avoid so much poison in my life because my relationship with God becomes more personal. I grow My relationship with my spouse and my family become about a partnership. God, it's your glory. And when I'm focused on your glory, you know what automatically happens? My good. I love what Deuteronomy says. Obey these commandments so that it may go well with you. Man, my worship to God becomes precious that when I gather in this place, man, I don't care what anybody else thinks about how I sing. I want to sing. I want to celebrate what I've been obeying all week long. I want to celebrate the forgiveness that God has offered me when I've been disobedient all week long. My worship becomes precious, but here's the last thing. Man, my financial investment to the church becomes a passion. Because did you see, once again, let me point your attention to it, what it says in verse 32. It says, hey, we're going to once again take on the obligation to give. Like we're going to say to ourselves, why wouldn't we give when we understand how much God has given us? We're going to take on that obligation. And then in the end of verse 49, we're not going to neglect the house of God. 
We're not going to neglect it. Because God meets the needs of his people through his people. And what goes on in this place, from the gospel being given to kids, to the gospel being shared in this room, to the gospel being shared outside of this room, to the gospel being shared in local and global partnerships through church planning and everything else, that happens because God's people say, man, we're going to see our financial investment to this local church not not, not as a duty, but man, as a passion. As a passion. I think of the parable of the rich man in Luke 12 where Jesus gives this parable where this rich man is blessed with bounty and instead of looking to God and understanding, God, how do you want me to invest this? He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to store up more stuff and I'm going to say, soul, look at what all you've accomplished. Big indicator that you are being disobedient when you start talking about yourself in the third person. And that's what this rich man does. Instead of saying to himself, you know what the greatest investment I can ever make? You don't want to know what the greatest stock option you can ever make is? Investment in Christ's church. There's no tax you got to pay. No corporate gains, none of that stuff. And I'm making a return that will last for eternity. Like, how amazing is it when you stop and think that I can give back to God what is already His and give back to Him and to see Him take that and to spread the gospel and change people's lives in this church, to change people's lives in that children's area, to change people's lives in teenagers, to change people's lives in this city, to change people's lives in this state, to change people's lives in this nation, to change people's lives in this world. And it's all God's anyway, but when I give back to Him, I actually receive blessing that will last for eternity. That there will be people in heaven that will be there because God used what he gave me to give back to him. Like, that ought to be a passion. That ought to be a passion. But the devil is so subtle to where he gets us to think, wait a minute, wait a minute, well, I can't afford to be obedient, so I'm just going to go and I'm going to drink the poison. And we wonder why we never have enough. And we wonder why there's always this emptiness inside of us that no matter how much stuff we accumulate, it doesn't solve anything. Why? Because we're not investing in what God wants us to invest in. We're not investing in the things that actually bring blessing. I love what 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but, or and, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then at the end of verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Someone who says, man, this is a passion of mine. It's a passion. You know, as we wrap up this morning, and what I want you to walk out with today, as we've looked at this chapter and looked at other passages of Scripture across the pages of God's Word, is that obedience to God's Word is a blessing, not a burden. It allows your relationship to God to be more personal. It allows your relationship with your spouse and family to be about partnership, God's glory. It allows your worship to be precious. And man, it 
allows you to take what God has given you and invest it in the places that God wants you to do it, and it becomes a passion, a passion. I still like to consider myself fairly young, and I've been in ministry by God's grace for 18 years. And here's something I've never heard when I've talked with someone, whether that's when they're close to dying, whether that's in a counseling room, whether that's in a conversation. I've never heard anybody say, I wish I would have obeyed God's word less. Never heard that. But I have heard a lot, and I've even said this. I wish I would have obeyed God's word more. See, God's desire for us is not misery, but it's blessing. Even in the midst midst of trial, even in the midst of suffering that God uses for our good and his glory, there's blessing in that. There's peace in that. There's living hope in that, 1 Peter 1. So man, let's be a people that see God's word for what it is. It's God's message to me to experience his best, to experience his blessings in my life. And let's view it as that. Thanks for listening to the Harvest Bible Chapel Winston-Salem podcast. For more information, visit harvestws.org.